But uh, I've kind of have this three-pronged approach to my career where I know that if I put all my eggs in the one basket of becoming an astronaut, there's a pretty high chance that I'm going to be disappointed. So instead, I, I've taken that on board that that's what, I'm, that's what I'm chasing, that's what I'm pursuing. But I know how unlikely it is for any person to, to just bet on that and get it. So I have these two kind of simultaneous parallel career trajectories that I'm trying to follow all at once, where I'd like to either be an astrophysicist and work on scientific research with the European Space Agency or work in uh, space operations, spacecraft control for ESA as well. Welcome to the Chasing Passion podcast. My name is Dom and I'm your host. Each week, I bring on a passionate person to help you discover your own passion in life and how to begin pursuing it. Thanks for spending some time with me today and let the episode begin. In this episode, we're joined by Killian Murphy. He's currently working as Irish national trainee at the European Space Agency. It is extremely difficult to get into such a role and only two people get selected annually. Killian has many aspirations and they all revolve around space. His biggest ambition is to become an ESA astronaut but knowing the difficulty and the challenges to do so, he's also following a career path in the European Space Operations Centre or work in astronomical research. In this episode, we talk about many various topics, but the bulk of our conversation revolved around the actual program he's doing, the journey to become an astronaut, and climate change. I really hope you enjoy listening to the episode, and without further ado, here is the episode with Killian Murphy. Um, Killian, welcome to the show. Thanks very much. So I guess the first question I want to ask you, just to get some context for the listeners, is just to, um, can you explain what your background is, what do you currently do, and what are you involved in? So right now, um, let's say I kind of have three things that I'm doing at the same time. But my, my main job is that I'm an Irish national trainee working for the European Space Agency. That means that I'm one of uh, two Irish people who are selected annually to work as trainees with the European Space Agency. Um, and we get a one to two year contract. So I've been extended. This is into my second year now. And I'm working with the Science Operations Center for the Gaia spacecraft, which is one of these uh, telescopes that we've launched up to space. And it's mapping, uh, let's say, the nearest 10% of the Milky Way, which is an order of magnitude improvement. Like It's a, it's a really revolutionary uh, change in our understanding of the Milky Way and the local space that we have around us. So it's a really significant mission that a lot of people are paying attention to. And then the other things that I'm kind of doing uh, tangentially at the same time that keep the rest of my time busy is that I'm also working with the Austrian Space Forum, uh, working uh, currently with the flight planning team for the next uh, simulated Mars mission. So every couple of years they're running uh, a simulated mission space mission where they are kind of working on developing technologies and workflows mission plans for uh, doing things efficiently effectively getting the job done as well and as safely as possible when we finally actually do get to send people to mars so they're doing a lot of research into that and i'm working with them now these days as of a little while back when i competed for a a position on their team as one of the analog astronauts, one of the people who would actually be playing the role of astronauts in these simulations. Now, I was one of the finalists, but didn't get selected for the team in the end, but I'm still working with them. And the other thing that I do is that I'm involved with the International Workshop for Astronomy, 
which is an organization that primarily organizes the International Astronomical Youth Camp, which is an annual three-week camp that is usually held in Europe. And we host uh, some 70-ish, 16 to 24-year-olds who are interested in astronomy to basically do a research camp where we're helping people to learn what it's like to do research, learn about space, learn about astronomy. Uh, we teach people to use telescopes and how to explore the sky and at the same time have a lot of fun. Wow. All of that sounds amazing. But before we get into that, I'd love to ask, like, what was your kind of, like, what was your childhood like and what kind of things were you interested in? So from the from the sounds of it, you're always interested in science and astronomy. Um, but were you always like that as a child? Yeah, I mean, I didn't really pick up on it necessarily so much when I was a kid. But I definitely always had a fascination with space, with science. Uh, there's stories that my mom loves to tell, you know, the way moms do where uh, she would tell people about when I was, I don't know, three, four, something like that. And I was told in a bookshop, you know, you can pick any book here that you want. And I came back with an encyclopedia of space. So it's definitely something I've always been uh, somewhat interested in. But um, as far as a, a career choice, it's something that came an awful lot later. So... Uh, uh, well, okay, as far as my childhood, my background, it's pretty convoluted. Um, my parents were traveling a lot when I was a kid, so I was born in Germany, but both my parents are Irish, which makes me, uh, that's what makes me Irish. Um, but for the first few years, we traveled all over the place to Japan. My brother was then born in South Africa, the United States. Uh, we were back in Ireland for a while when my other brother was born. I grew up m most of my early years in Mexico City. So we did a lot of traveling when I was young. And that also meant that I grew up largely bilingual with English and Spanish. So a lot of these things, I mean, traveling a lot when you're that young is difficult, but it has its benefits and it teaches you a lot. Of course. And this is this is fascinating because I've never heard of anyone who traveled so much, especially when you're young and you go to Mexican City. But you said, yeah, traveling has a lot of benefits and downsides to it. What were the benefits for you? So obviously the first and most obvious benefit would be being bilingual. Just it's it's not it's different even from when you learn another language as an adult or or in school or something. If you just have this kind of natural native intuition with more than one language where you you're spoken to in another language and it it's the same. It needn't be any different from the the one that you grew up with. I mean, I did grow up with both of these languages, so. Uh, it gives you this natural fluency that's hard to get any other way. Um, and then also just the experience of moving so much. Uh, you learn to adapt to change very quickly. You learn to communicate with people efficiently, to get to know people quickly. Because, you know, if you're moving a lot, then you need to make new friends pretty regularly. You need to get to know people. You need to make strong contacts before you move on again or you, you leave with nothing. Hmm. And you also studied physics and astronomy in UCD. Would I be correct in saying that? Yeah, my my undergraduate degree was uh, physics with astronomy and space science. Oh, and then you also went on to do a master's. Yeah, the master's degree was space science and technology. So I get that the, the names can be a little bit hard to disentangle, but yeah, they're they're slightly different. Okay, and I'm very curious. Like, what was the decision process in choosing that course? Um, um, yeah, what was the decision process there? I guess. Well, this ties in a little bit what I was saying, that the decision to actually pursue astronomy as a career came quite late. So in, in school, in high, uh, secondary school, we're talking Irish terms here, 
Uh, I I was pretty confident I wanted to study physics. I, I did well in maths. I really enjoyed. I was really curious about science and physics. I was definitely convinced I wanted to go into something scientific. But I, beyond that, I didn't really know very well. So um, I, I ended up settling on, on physics. So I went to UCD just saying, look, I'll be doing a physics degree. I've gotten into UCD physics. Uh, but I still didn't really have like a direction I wanted to take that. So I had a look at what degrees were available in UCD physics and the options that were on the table were uh, physics or experimental physics. So that was just kind of like working in labs, solving experiments, you know, doing this kind of stuff. Uh, theoretical physics, which is uh, kind of what you think of, you know, the Big Bang Theory type uh, stereotype of a physicist where it's just all whiteboards and people working out equations and staring at numbers all day long. Um, honestly, that wasn't really quite for me. And the last option uh, was uh, the degree that I did do, the physics with astronomy and space science. And given my history of fascination with Space, it wasn't really that hard to, to make my choice between those and say, yeah, I mean, the one that sounds most appealing, the most fun, the most interesting, let's say the, the one that held the most fascination for me as a person was astronomy. So that's what made that decision. And then intuitively from there, I had to decide what I wanted that to actually do for me, though. I and mean, you don't go to university just for the sake of it. You know, it has to lead to a career. It has to bring you somewhere. So that's when I made the decision that if I'm going to pursue that career, I may as well aim high and see where I can get to. So that was around the time that I also made the decision to pursue the career to be an astronaut, which honestly is, is much later than most people make that decision. That's amazing. So you were literally on the verge of becoming an astronaut. Like that's your ultimate goal, I guess, is it? Uh, well, yeah, it's, let's say it's my highest ambition, but uh, I've kind of have this three pronged approach to my career where I know that if I put all my eggs in the one basket of becoming an astronaut, there's a pretty high chance that I'm going to be disappointed. So instead, I, I've taken that on board that that's what, I'm, that's what I'm chasing, that's what I'm pursuing. But I know how unlikely it is for any person to, to just bet on that and get it. So I have these two kind of simultaneous parallel career trajectories that I'm trying to follow all at once where I'd like to either be an astrophysicist and work on scientific research with the European Space Agency or work in uh, space operations, spacecraft control for ESA as well. I see. And you're currently Irish national trainee and you said only two people get selected every single year, which is huge. What do you think um, helped you get that role? Um, a, a few factors. The fact that I already had experience working with ESA so I already had like in inside contacts on my master's degree. I did my master's thesis research in the European Astronaut Center in Germany. Right. So I think that tried that there was inside people who could vouch for me was probably a big factor. Um, also, the fact that the the station is ESAC here in, in Spain, and I'm already a fluent Spanish speaker, so there was no concern that I'd have trouble adjusting to life in a Spanish-speaking country because it's almost no different to me to living in Dublin. Like I communicate no problem here. I get by as easily as I would living on my own at home. Um, and finally, just the experience that I had, you know, it suited the position. It, I had the skills that they were looking for. I understand. And what kind, of, what, like, what kind of work do you actually do every single day? Like, what does your work entail? Well, I've been, there, uh, been working here for nearly a year and a half now. So it has changed a little bit since the beginning. 
right at the start, I was taking over a project from someone else who had been working here previously, uh, a YGT, a young graduate trainee, which is a very similar role to the one that I have. Um, but it was a project that was kind of left hanging. She finished and it wasn't done. And uh, I took that over and saw the completion, uh, just kind of like verifying that all the work was done correctly, that all the results uh, were correct and to, you know, get as much information out of that as we could. Um, that was a bit slow going, especially because most of that work was written in a programming language I'd never used before. So there was an awful, a pretty steep learning curve with that. But uh, it was it was interesting at the same time. I was in a new environment, had a lot of very interesting people around me, a lot of learning opportunities here. So hit the ground running and crawling all at the same time. Um, and since then, I've been moving on to slightly more involved roles where I'm working on more active research. I'm working on actually operating some of the uh, tools for processing Gaia data or even some of the novel Gaia data that hasn't actually been examined previously. So I'm part of an effort to study some of this data that has been collected, but that nobody has actually found a way to get any use out of it yet. That's super interesting. Wow. And, you know, when you when you come into work, uh, let's just say, I don't know, 9 a.m., whenever you start work, what does a typical day look like for you from start to finish? Well, from when I get into work, um, I, I since I cycle into work, I normally spend the first while kind of like just settling myself down, recording my cycle, having a shower and, and or, uh, having a cup of tea while I focus on what, what's going on. So by the time... I actually get working between arriving and working is probably 20 to 30 minutes. Um, after that, it's uh, I'm, I spend pretty much the whole day in front of a computer, in front of a laptop, which is probably not alien to most people uh, in today's day and age. But uh, it's what I'm looking at is a lot of large tables of data, a lot of code uh, in and out of uh, remote clusters where I have to kind of like connect to... Uh, remote machines from my laptop and access data and make changes there, talking with other members of the team. Uh, I normally take uh, take a break for lunch at about half past 12, quarter past 12, and I hang out with the other trainees that are here at ESAC. So we, we go and eat together at the same time. We take a break, maybe play a card game or something before we all come back to the office and keep doing more of the same, just working through our workloads, our tasks. Mm. And you mentioned um, skills, or I mean, I mean coding. What would you say kind of are the skills that are needed to do your job well? So I assume it's that analysis, coding, just from what you mentioned, but I'm curious to know, like, what's your kind of perspective on that? Yeah, I mean, that would be the core of it. Uh, there's a much wider skill set that you kind of pick up inevitably when you're studying physics, but when when it comes to doing a job, it's much more focused than what you would get at university you know university teaches you to be really versatile and when you come into the workforce there's just something very specific that people want you to get done so my role here has been primarily that of a software developer uh, which is part of what made things really difficult at the start i was using a language that i wasn't familiar with so i was i was writing code that i didn't fully understand uh, myself so it was really complicated for me in the beginning um, but yeah, that's, I think you really did hit the nail on the head as far as what I, the skills that I have that I apply for this job is more 
programming skills than anything else. Like uh, you, you could have taken any one of the mill software developer to do this kind of work, uh, at least at the heart of it. And there's an element of needing to understand the, the physics behind it as well so that you write the right stuff so that it all makes sense. I see. I imagine college, was quite, which is kind of interesting because I feel like um, I did an internship as well and I feel like most of the skills um, like I picked up were just from the on the job. So I'm curious to know like what was kind of what was the best perspective for you, I guess. And like, so I guess the question is, um, what did you learn from college? So, yeah, you mentioned college during that. And I'm curious to know, what did you learn from college? Because I feel like in college and what you learn in college and what you do on the job is quite different. But, yeah, what's your perspective on that? Yeah, so uh, in in undergraduate, things were an awful lot more streamlined for me. Like there was, we were doing a relatively tight set of things. We were doing the, the physics of things, a bit of programming, a bit of electronics in our labs and stuff. But things were, were fairly focused right down the track of like, this is what physics is. These are, this is the next step up in terms of physics theory from what you've seen before, learning a new, more advanced set of mathematics to be able to explain it all. Um, but then at master's level, which is what really has mattered more to what I'm doing nowadays, it was, uh, it was actually an awful lot broader. Um, we didn't, we didn't dig as deep into each subject, but we saw an awful lot more things. Like it really added a lot more to our toolkit. We, I suppose one of the most significant things that I did was that uh, in, in groups of four in my class, we designed, uh, built and launched a CAN satellite project. So that was a, a really small satellite thing that we were designing to uh, fly with a weather balloon up to 30 kilometers and then drop with a parachute and uh, we had a limit of one kilogram of mass that we could fit into this thing um, so that was one of the most educational things that I picked out of my entire university career is all of the different things that we had learned coming together into how you focus them in onto one task one project you have multiple people taking different parts of it and you build a puzzle together so it's hard to say like individual things because you learn so many things but i think the most significant thing then is how you learn to work as a group and take all those pieces and put them together into a greater whole well that that parachute project that sounds amazing and what did you learn as a result of doing that like what kind of skills what kind of um things did you need to implement that and actually launch it well, that was pretty interesting. Now, as I say, we split the responsibilities for the project between four people. So my main responsibility for it was the electrical design and the programming of the satellite. So I was responsible for nearly all of the code and for the, the master implementation of it, as it were. So any code that anyone else wrote, they still had to give to me and I would have a look over it and integrate it into the, the main body of code. So I had to learn some new things about coding previously. I don't only ever had to write like one command to have an experiment run itself in the lab. Whereas now there was lots of different parts of this satellite working independently and they had to share information between one another. Uh, so it was a lot more complicated than things I had done previously. So there was a lot of programming involved in that. And I learned several new skills and approaches to programming when, while I was doing that as well as uh, I believe this is true for a lot of physicists, but electronics is a surprisingly complicated subject. Like it's really, really difficult to really deeply understand everything that's going on. 
so being the person in charge of electrical design for that, how everything was going to connect together and work properly was also a bit of a challenge, but it was, it's a fun type of challenge. It's really nice to see it all come together and work out in the end. And how long did that project take to complete from start to finish? Um, ooh, I think it was a semester. I think we had uh, three, four months from start to finish to do the whole thing. So we were told at the start of one semester that that's what we were going to be doing. And we, we went through the whole design process. So we'd have multiple iterations of design documents. And then we would start to actually construct things in reality, test everything, characterize how everything worked, that it worked as we expected, uh, put together the final project, final assembly, final tests, and then wrap it all up with the final launch day where we went up to Fermanagh. We, we launched the, the weather balloons and then chased them in cars so that we were still in range to get the, the radio signals from them. And uh, we covered those. Well, we recovered one of them. Uh, my one was unfortunately part of a pair that landed in Loch Ness. Uh, so we didn't see those again for a while. And when we did, they weren't in good shape. Some fishermen found them. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, so you said you're in the, um, in the, well, the contract is two years. And I'm curious to know, like, what are the next steps for you uh, towards becoming an astronaut and whatever else you want to do in the ESA? Well, so that's actually a pretty, that, the answer to that question is in flux just as of very recently. Um, my plan had been to just uh, stay here till the end of my contract in October and hopefully start a PhD in the new year. Um, that's still something I would like to do. Um, but let's say my backup plan to that was to do another master's degree in like a technical discipline to complement the fact that I'm already a scientist. I already have a lot of the, the physics background. I know how the science side of things works, but pick, pick up more technical skills, do some engineering or computer science, get better with all, all the, uh, let's say, implementation side of things. I've got the understanding down, the, the scientific background down, and I want to get better at programming and engineering and design to... Uh, bring more to the table when it comes to actually testing all of that stuff, putting into practice in the real world, um, as well as just looking for jobs in the industry. Uh, in terms of PhDs, I used to be very focused on I wanted to do planetary science, so something like studying Mars, studying Europa, uh, studying environments in our solar system where there's potential for life as well as studying interesting new environments like exoplanets that we're only just kind of starting to probe and get a feel for. Uh, so there's a lot of interesting stuff in that, but it's a very competitive field and I didn't have a lot of luck in the past after my master's degree looking for PhDs in that field. So I've started to branch out into other things that still lead me where I want to go, still complement my ambition to become an astronaut. So those things there again, like PhDs, in materials engineering and other kinds of science, or also uh, what a lot of people might not think or realize, a lot of uh, weather science, geology, meteorology, all those things are actually very valuable when we're talking about going to uh, environments outside of the Earth. So those are also things that I would be trying to learn more about. And I'm very curious to ask you, do you think humans will be a multi species very soon, or when do you think that's going to happen? planetary 
Well, I guess it depends on your definition of very soon. Um, as it is right now, I think a lot of the, the goals uh, to get to Mars are a little bit overambitious. I mean, I'd love to see them come to fruition in the timescales that are proposed, but humans stepping foot on Mars in 10 years, in 2030, or even even wilder in 2024, 2026, I don't really see those as realistic goals. Uh, sorry, one second. Uh, however, I do think that we're going to see in the relatively near future, you know, give it 20, 30 years, I think it's almost guaranteed that people will be going further afield, that we will have a more established presence on the moon again, and that we may have seen the first people on Mars by then. So I'm definitely optimistic that it's going to happen in, in the near future, but as near as SpaceX or NASA would have you believe, I'm still skeptical. I understand. And what are you currently most excited about in, in the space um, field in general? Uh, there's actually an awful lot of things to be excited about, uh, to be honest. Um, I guess me personally, what I'm really excited to see is us sending people deeper into space again. The ISS has been an, an incredible uh, facility that we, that we put to excellent use for, for quite a long time now. And I'm looking forward to the next steps. The, all these plans to have big international collaborations for the Lunar Gateway Station, lunar bases, missions to Mars, all of this stuff is, I mean, that's my, my passion. Those are things that I'm really, really behind. And I, I can't wait to see those things actually come to fruition. But then there's, there's so many other things like uh, gravitational waves, probing dark matter, trying to figure out what dark energy is. There's so many other things in terms of just pure fundamental science that are having breakthroughs right now, uh, starting to be able to study exoplanets more closely. There's really so much going on. It's hard to pick what I'm most excited about because science right now, it seems, is just super dynamic and there's so many things to watch that you can't keep up. And let's just say there's some sort of genie, except this genie doesn't grant you wishes. It will answer any question you have. So what are the three questions you ask this genie? And like, he'll give you the actual answers you need. Um, but I'm just curious to know, what are the que three questions for you? Jesus, that's a tricky question. <laughs> um, I mean, I th in terms of knowledge that I'd like to have, I think acquiring it is, is part of the satisfaction of having it. So it wouldn't really be, you know, like science questions or something that I'd be asking, but maybe more so I'd ask questions like, how do we best communicate science and share what we learn with people so that you don't see all of this confusion or discussion and debate about what scientists do or don't say, what is or isn't agreed upon. There's, there's a lot of misinformation out there, which is really frustrating when we have strong consensus in science and it doesn't actually reach people in the right way. So definitely one of my questions would have to be about how, what is like the ideal or perfect way to reach out to people to communicate science and what it is that we're learning with everyone else. Um, in terms of just pure questions, I guess an interesting one we're unlikely to find an answer to ourselves uh, at least not in the way that people would would imagine. 
uh, anytime soon, if ever, is uh, about, you know, extraterrestrial life that's out there. Uh, I would definitely be in the camp that believes it's definitely out there somewhere, but I really don't believe it's been to Earth, but I'd, I'd be very curious to know more about what is out there and, and what is the reality of life beyond Earth, uh, how, how different are things. And let's go for a slightly more profound one. It would be interesting to know the real nature of like the stars, the beginning of, of all of this, of the universe, uh, how, how it all came to be. Well, those questions I would die to find out. So, yeah, absolutely. And you mentioned there's a lot of misinformation in science in general. How do you think people should overcome this? Um, how do we how do we know what to trust, essentially? How do we know if what we read on the internet, if perhaps, like, how do we know if information is valid? I guess that's my point. Well, it'll depend an awful lot on what the nature of the information is. But if you're talking about scientific subjects, a really good fact check is to use things rather than just doing a Google or check your social media. You can, you can try things that are a little bit more academic, like Google Scholar is a, is an offshoot Google search engine that just returns academic publications. So if you think that you know what scientists agree on and you search it in Google Scholar and you find things that agree with you, there's a really strong case that that is real science that scientists actually back you up on. And if the papers you find there are disagreeing with you, you probably are misinformed about what science says. So that, that would be a good fact check on scientific matters. Uh, as a general rule of thumb about information about anything, I'd say to people is like, look beyond your normal scope of information. Don't just read only one newspaper, one news outlet. Don't just listen to what X, Y, and Z celebrities have to say, you need to take as many sources as possible. And the farther you go outside your normal sphere of information, your nor the, the, the normal context that you have, like if you're only ever talking to the same people, you're nearly never going to be really learning something new. You're always going to be talking from the same viewpoint, the same perspective. The more you step outside of that space, the more accurate and authentic all of your information is likely to be. The more you challenge what you think, the the less likely you are to be wrong. Yeah, that makes that makes sense. And uh, on that topic, where do you get your information out of? How do you acquire knowledge? Because you said um, acquiring knowledge is part of the fun. So how do you gain new knowledge and how do you learn new things? Well, these days, most of it is through work. You know, I have new challenges that come up all the time. I see something new, something I've never had to do before. So I would be looking for, for guides on things. I'd be talking to people around me who have experience in these things. The best way to learn anything new is always go to the source of the information, ask somebody who knows, and walk it through it step by step. And, and this is kind of an approach that I've always had to education is it's not good enough to learn how to do it until you understand why you do it that way. So you want, you want to have a really deep understanding of why things happen where they do, not just be able to say, okay, if I write this, this line of code, this is going to happen. I want to understand every word in that code so that if I change just one part of it, it'll do something drastically different, but I'll know exactly what that is and why. So it becomes a much more powerful tool that way. That, that, that kind of 
really deep understanding of things is very satisfying. Um, but in terms of me trying to learn like absolutely new things that aren't relevant to what I'm doing or to the people that are around me, the internet is an endless source of information. It's incredible what opportunities are available to us there. And things like edX are, I mean, not that long ago, people would have killed for access to learning resources like that. It is unbelievably valuable. And I would encourage anyone who wants to learn something new to, to just dive in, take, take a chance on it. You can learn anything you want if you just make the time for it. Sorry, what is the website you mentioned? edX, is it? edX. edX. That's edx.org. Oh, .org, I see. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, okay. I'm going to look into that. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's .org. Yep, but, um, yeah, it's uh, it's basically an educational. Yeah, there it is, an educational form that I've used a few times for doing online courses, and it's just pretty much all free learning. You know, you don't have to pay anything to to access this stuff. You can learn about whatever you like, and uh, it's only if you want professional qualifications in these things. Then there's a, let's let's say a pretty fair, a pretty modest fee for you to be officially certified from those courses as well. Yeah, I mean, the internet is, like like you said, it, it's amazing. Like, you can literally just become an expert in whatever subject you want. And all the information is there. So I think, like, having that opportunity is amazing. And I actually never heard of this website, edX, before. But um, I'm definitely going to have a look into it. It's, I'm looking at it now, and it's very interesting. So, yeah, thank you for that. And on that topic, no um, what kind of books or what kind of books have you recommended or gifted the most to other people? Well, yeah, this will be probably not the answer you're expecting, but uh, the book I would have uh, recommended or gifted to most people is one written by a good friend of mine, um, because uh, after she first published uh, one of her books, my Christmas gift to her that year was I bought a stack of them and just gave them out to other people as gifts. So that was kind of like all, all, all of your question wrapped up into one thing. Um, I mean, there's an element of me just trying to support a friend that I admire and that I think she's doing a really good job and she's really working hard for what she's doing. Uh, but at the same time, I read her book. I've I've read some of her pre-publication drafts for several of her books, and I'm currently waiting impatiently for the next publication. So, uh, I mean, if you're interested, her, her name is uh, Janina Frank. Uh, that's uh, F-R-A-N-C-K and uh, she has really fun stories about kind of like adventure and stuff uh, which is definitely the kind of things I like to read is like fantasy, adventure, fun, crazy things uh, even historical fiction like uh, uh, David uh, Gemmel or David Jamel I'm not really sure how you pronounce it but um that he's been one of my favorite authors where I've read a lot of his historical fiction that is very interesting. It's set in these settings that we're very familiar with and that most of us really enjoy, like Greece or the Celtic world. But he he brings them alive. He sets them in like a, a world that is ours, but just ever so slightly different that he can play with what's happening and you don't know what's coming. Uh, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, that's kind of the kind of things that I really enjoy reading and tend to recommend to people. And sorry, what's the name of the book? And I'll link down the show notes. 
Uh, which book? The one from my friend? From your friend, yeah. The, the first book in her series is called The Chronicles of the Bat. Okay. I can send you a link to it if you want later. Yeah, dude, that'd be great. And before the interview started, you also mentioned um, the role of what you do and environment responsibility. So what's your kind of take on environment and what's happening in the world and how we can perhaps prevent it? Well, there's a few different levels to it, really. I mean, I became involved in this green ESAC initiative here at work, which is just a bunch of the people working here coming together to discuss ways that we can improve uh, the way that we work individually, uh, the the way that the facility operates. Like we've we've been in discussions with the canteen, with the facilities management on better energy solutions, better waste management, uh, replacing plastics with reusable cups, uh, repla- replacing all sorts of uh, waste products with things that are that are reusable and that we can uh, kind of become greener, become more sustainable that way here at work. Uh, so that was kind of like very quickly I was in, in getting involved in that here. In my personal life for quite some time, I've been trying to be more conscious about this. I've pretty much always cycled. So that was a pretty easy decision. I, I cycled around socially. Uh, back at home in Dublin, I would cycle to and from school, to and from university. Uh, at one point, I would cycle at least once a week, pretty much the entire way across from Dundrum, uh, well into the north side, just to go to martial arts training once a week. So I, it's no stranger to me for doing a lot of cycling, and I'm still doing that to work. So it's not like I made a big sacrifice or a big push for that. But it's something anyone can do if they're committed to. I mean, I know some people, especially in, in Ireland and the vicinity of Dublin, they might be too far away to really consider that as an option. But most of us are able to make these changes in our personal life, our routines. We can use more public transport. We can cycle and walk rather than driving. Uh, this, uh, we can eat less meat. I mean, I'm not telling people to go vegetarian. I don't fancy doing it myself. But if instead of eating meat in every meal, you have it every other meal, that makes a big difference and makes almost no change to how you're actually eating. So it's, it, it's not that we need to make big sacrifices. We just need to think about things. You know, turning off the lights is a simple change, but it can make a big difference. Absolutely. And do you feel like it's too late to make any change or is it possible to reverse it? Because like, there's a lot of bad things happening. Like like you said, like first of all, the food industry, then there's deforestation, then there's too much SU2 emissions from public transport, planes, everything. Like, Do you feel like it's possible to overcome this big issue or is it, are we too late in the game because like um ice sheets are already melting like yeah ice already melting so i guess like what's your take on that yeah i mean there's there's again there's a lot of different ways that you can look at it personally i i believe a lot in the potential of people uh like i think i don't think it's too late for us to tackle this challenge what i'm waiting for is for people to wake up and decide that they want to like we're fully capable of turning this thing around in a very short amount of time if we only decided that we actually wanted to make the effort to do so. Um, and I've been commenting recently how the response to the coronavirus outbreak highlights how little people in authority, the forces that be, actually care about 
these green actions actually care about action for the environment because in such a little time for something that, granted, there, there's important reasons to tackle coronavirus, and I'm not going to deny that at all, but so much is being done in such a short amount of time over this crisis that has only just developed. And this, and meanwhile, the environment, which is such a critical threat, it's, it's actually so much more dangerous to us in the long term. And it's been getting worse, and it is so serious, and yet so little has happened about it. So I think this current situation that's just developing highlights how, how little attention and how little importance those in power have actually given to the environmental issues. Um, so I think there, there is that, but I'm still, I, I'm, yeah, again, I'm a little bit pessimistic about what has happened, but I fully believe that people are capable of turning it around and making amazing things happen when they want to. Yeah, I have a few comments on that as well. First of all, like I'm, I'm very passionate about environment and I, I feel like all young people are at this stage. And I agree with that people have a lot more power than, than they do. Like when you think about it, the, the authority, like they're just like, I feel like collectively, if people all got together and tried to solve the problem, we can do so much more. Like the example I always have in my head, like what if, like what if just, I always have the Coney video for some reason, Coney 2012 video in my head. The way like if, if you have that some sort of action that people should like no, like tomorrow that's it we're all gonna go to to superstores and ask or supermarkets and ask people or ask the managers to stop for example using um you know packaging on apples or whatever just have like loose loose fruit or like all these all these things make a difference but i guess what i'm trying to say there yeah like collectively as people if the whole world population got together and did something about it we can do a lot more but it's not as easy as that because like you said people need to be actually kind of like just wake up a little bit and understand what's going on because i feel like in these in in ireland for example in the us in these well-developed countries we don't really see what's happening around us that well but like where you go to more developing countries where they're experiencing these natural disasters and it has a literal effect on their homes and everything else it's the difference is is huge so i feel like we just need to have more perspective on those things yeah i i agree completely but also i mean we see disasters happening in in first world countries as well the, the raging fires in the australian bushfires in the west coast of of the americas all across canada and, and the us we're seeing increasing storms hitting ireland and europe we we had that huge snowstorm not that long ago, all across Europe. These things are affecting us everywhere. We're just better able to cope. Um, and people are kind of given the opportunity to say, ah, that was just a freak every time. And these freaks are going to keep happening and they're going to get worse and they're going to get more frequent. And the sooner people say, look, it's not, it's not freaks. It's not just a one-off. We're making this happen and, and we need to do something to turn things around sooner rather than later before this gets really beyond us and in your opinion what do you think people can do some everyday actions that people should take to um fight climate change i know you mentioned um like taking public transport deciding to work and um, eating less meat and those things are very important but i guess like what what else is there um, on your mind that we should perhaps do 
I think the most powerful thing that people have access to that we don't see being put into effect so much yet. I mean, it's growing, but it, it, there's still a lot more room for it to, to happen is social accountability for, for people to actually look at one another and hold each other to account. Like if you see someone being outright wasteful or, or doing things that are harmful, needlessly, senselessly, carelessly, to call them out on it the same way you would to someone who's being uh, publicly racist or bigoted or sexist. You're not going to stand around and watch that. And at some point, we should we shouldn't tolerate each other, you know, shitting on the environment either. You know, we we need to call one another out on our bad habits. Not, and I'm not saying that we need to turn against one another. It has to be a collaborative thing. It's like, hey man, you know, that's that's not the best way to go about it. You know, I'll help you uh, if if you want. Or here's a, a better solution to this. It's not about criticizing other people. But helping people to see where there's room for improvement and helping them to achieve that. So it, it's it's not meant to be a critical thing. It's meant to be teamwork. It's meant to be us coming together, recognizing these things and solving them together. I don't want to be suggesting that anyone should be at, at each other's throats over any of this. But um, uh, yeah, the uh, the other side of that is not just each other on a personal level, but we all need to hold our governments and our companies. And, you know, that, that's where the power the, for real big change is. And we need to hold them to account more than anything. But that doesn't mean that the pressure isn't on the rest of us. We all have a role to play in this. We can't just sit back and say, hey, it's the government's business. Make them fix it. Uh, we need to put the pressure on them. And we need, when, if, if the entire workforce of a company turns around and says to their uh, to their CEOs, to their managers, look, we are not going to be doing 10 trips a year anymore. This is madness. We're, we're going to do more video conferencing. We're going to have local meetings with the teams and then have fewer people who go to the, to the cross team meetings or all this. There's so many things that people do that are so wasteful in business that can be improved upon if people want to. And if, if the workforce decides that it's not on, it's not on the big shots at the top anymore. You just tell them, look, this is how it's going to be. Because if everyone agrees at the bottom of the ladder, no one at the top can make them do it anymore. You know, there's so many more people that are just normal people. And people at the top depend on the bottom of the totem pole. You know, you made some very good points that I'm so happy you mentioned, like you summarized them very well, because that's, I mean, 100%. Like, I think social accountability is huge. And, like, if everybody did, like, for example, when you see people smoking, you know that's wrong. And you're like, hey, you know, stop smoking. It's, it's bad for you, whatever. And, like, yeah, like you said, like, if, if you do something bad, like, people are obviously going to look at you and say, hey, what, what are you at? And that should be the same with climate change. So, absolutely, 100%. And I feel like education and just uh, more and more people doing it, I think that's definitely going to help. And then when you mentioned... Um, with the whole video conferencing and travel example, I think that's huge as well. Because that's, that's like, I, I always believe that people, like, people have, each if each person has the biggest responsibility. Like, we all play a role. It's not just the government. Of course, yes, we need to put pressure on them, like you said. But individual people can do so much action. Like you said, it all goes from the bottom to the top. So if the people at the bottom, um, 
you know, fight for change or say we don't want to travel, we want to do video conference instead. Like the people at the top are gonna are gonna have to adjust. Same with eating meat, for example. If people are not buying meat anymore, like you just can't produce anymore because it's not efficient. So I think the points you made there are fantastic, and I think that's literally what we need to do. Yeah, I mean, there's so many so many facets to this. There's so many things that every single person is capable of doing. The the only thing that's required is for you to decide that you want to. Yeah, absolutely. And going on a slightly different topic, um, if you had a dinner party with three people, who would these people be for you? Jesus, I should have seen this question coming. <laughs> um, I mean, I guess the the first person that comes to mind is Chris Hadfield. I don't know if you know him, but he's a, a Canadian astronaut who's uh, he's very well known. I guess he's Ireland's favorite astronaut is an accolade that he has. Um, but he's a really inspiring individual. Um, and I think he's done a lot to kind of like uh, humanize space and, and bring people closer to the space to uh, to astronauts and what, what we're, the work that we're doing in space in a time that people were really becoming very indifferent to it and drifting away from it. It's been kind of a continuous thing since the days of Apollo that people have cared less and less about this stuff. And Chris Hadfield's time on the ISS, I felt, was kind of a turning point in that. Now, we're still seeing a trend of astronauts doing great with social media and reaching out to people and making contact with the public. But to me, the real turning point was Chris Hadfield, and I think he did an amazing job with that. So... Without a doubt, if I could have three people for dinner and have a chat with them, Chris Hadfield has to make the list. Um, but, you know, I'm not, I'm not one for, like, fawning over a lot of people or uh, celebrity culture, so it's hard for me to think of a lot of other names um, without saying something benign, like my girlfriend would be there. <laughs> um, yeah, I, I guess, mean, I mean... I, I, I have I have my doubts about SpaceX. I think they're doing amazing work. Uh, don't get me wrong on that. I, I have a, lo- uh, a lot of admiration and support for SpaceX, uh, but I have my doubts about it as well. So I guess I could have some really interesting conversations with Elon Musk. I wouldn't be one of these people who's behind them 100% and believes everything that SpaceX is doing is going to pull through. But I do have a lot of ad- admiration for them pushing boundaries on stuff. And uh, sure, there's another name. Uh, another person, I guess, would be really interesting to have a conversation with would be the physicist Michio Kaku. Uh, who is it? Mich- Michio Kaku is a... Mi- Michio Kaku is a Japanese... I think he's Japanese uh, scientist who he's done a lot of documentaries. So if, you, if you've ever watched kind of like documentaries about space or about science, about technology, there's a very, very good chance that if you've seen a Japanese guy, a kind of old Japanese guy talking about stuff there, that it's been him. Okay. And what would you say is the habit that has helped you the most in the last five years? Uh, I'm in the process of kind of trying to reforge all my habits, but um, I guess the, the one that I'd point to the most is the fact that I'm so used to traveling on my bike. You know, that's, that is definitely a habit that I have that has followed me through a very large portion of my life. And it it, has, it brings so many benefits. I mean, not just the fact that it's an awful lot cheaper to run a bike than it is a car, but it's good for my health. 
it's better for the environment. So there, there's so many just bonuses that come along with it. That that being a normal aspect of my life, I don't think about it at all. It's just something that is that way that I do. Um, but it's that's a habit that I really appreciate in my life, and that has had an, a, a lot of impact. You know, I, I do a lot of sports. I uh, I need to keep fit and healthy for my career ambitions, and that really does a lot for me in that regard. Okay. Uh, well, look, Killian, I think it's an excellent opportunity to finish up the podcast. But before we do, I'd love to ask you if you had a message, um, if you had to put up a message on a billboard, and this billboard is um, displayed for the whole world to see. So people walking along the street, they look up at the sky and they see a big giant billboard. What message would you put up on that billboard? Mm. Well, I think I've got an answer pretty quickly to that. In, and I think it applies to a lot of the things that we've talked about and so much more. Uh, and it would be something to the effect that we're all in this together. You know, we're all one community. We're all everything in this world that is good and bad. We all take it together. We're all on the same side. Everyone should be nice and supportive to one another and, and tackle challenges together. You know, that, that's the message that I would want to send to everyone out there. Excellent. Well, look, yeah. Um, thank you so much for coming to the podcast. It was a pleasure. And before we finish up, is there anything else you'd like to mention? Anything you'd like to say? Anything at all? Uh, no, I think I'm good. Thanks very much. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the episode and I really hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the show notes on the website chasingpassion.ie That is chasingpassion.ie If you're looking to support the podcast in any way, I would really appreciate if you could leave a short review on Apple Podcast, and this would literally take about 60 seconds and it will help the podcast grow in so many ways. You can find the link to Apple Podcast in the episode description or just simply search Chasing Passion on Apple Podcast and it should pop right up. Thank you so much for listening to the episode. It means the world to me. I really appreciate it. And yeah, just thank you so much. And have a great day.